Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I would like to give a heartfelt thank you to Amune for sponsoring FACT's Roundtable podcast. In this episode, we take a deep dive into learning how to speak to your allergist about participating in oral immunotherapy, also known as OIT, with board-certified allergist Dr. Brian Vickery. Dr. Vickery's signature easy-to-understand style shines through in this lively conversation as he offers insight into the OIT process, family, and patient commitments. Welcome back, Dr. Vickery, to Facts Roundtable podcast. We're absolutely thrilled you are back on the show again to talk about OIT. Some of your podcasts have been our most popular podcast because this is a really important topic. Well, Caroline, thanks for the invitation to come back. I always enjoy our visits and hope it can be useful to the listeners. I am positive it will be useful. I've already been telling people that this is coming up and that they should be watching out for it. Oh, gosh. Well, I hope I can live up to that. I know. No pressure, right? (laughs) So before we get started, can you share your background and how you became involved with oral immunotherapy, also known as OIT? Sure. Well, I finished my training in fellowship in 2008 and had the good fortune to be recruited to Duke University by a guy there named Wesley Burks, Dr. Wesley Burks, who was really a pioneer in oral immunotherapy and many things in allergy, but in particular oral immunotherapy. So his group, the previous year in 2007, had published their first study on OIT with egg, actually, And so you could say I kind of got in on the ground level of some of the early academic studies that were happening at Duke and other centers at that time. And then I had my first NIH grant as a junior faculty member at Duke was to do an early intervention OIT study in young kids with peanut allergy, which had not been tried before. And then from there, I kind of I had the opportunity to help lead a development program for AR101, which is now known as Palforzia. And now I get the opportunity to and really the pleasure of using OIT and my clinical practice in real world patients. So I guess you could sort of say I've been doing this for almost 15 years now and and seen it grow from kind of an early stage research idea to now an increasingly common clinical treatment for patients. Sounds like you were actually kind of one of the OGs of food allergy from back in the day. That's really exciting to watch the evolution of this. Well, I was lucky to be recruited by somebody who was one of the OGs, who was a mentor and who gave me all kinds of opportunities and connected me with other people. And and that included Stacy Jones and Hugh Sampson and many other people around the country who were working on it at that time. It was a matter of being in the right place at the right time. It was a lot of luck. 
Well, I'm glad you had that good luck. So now we know OIT is a treatment for food allergies, and so many people are still learning about it. So can you explain to listeners just what exactly is OIT? Well, I think we can probably go into it in some detail about kind of how it works. But I think at a high level, when I talk to patients about it, you know, there's a few things I emphasize. The first is that it's not a cure for, for food allergy. And so people need to know it's, it's a treatment that can be very helpful and it can be even life-changing for some, but it's not a treatment that's right for everybody. And even for those who select it, it's not a cure. So I, I talk about it like you still have to avoid your allergen, you still have to read labels, you still have to carry epinephrine and, and speak to servers in restaurants and take all the precautions that you normally take. But OIT is used as sort of an adjunct to those kinds of management strategies to help protect somebody in the event of the accidents that we know are inevitable despite our best efforts to avoid them. In that way, I talk about it like you still have to drive this, the speed limit, but it's like you're wearing a seatbelt, right? That's the idea. Really, the process is to change the body's response to allergen through controlled exposure and over time make the patient less sensitive. We have the best data for OIT in terms of peanut allergy. We have also some, some high-quality data for milk and egg, less so than for peanut, and then you know far less data for other common food allergens like cashew, shrimp, or sesame. Okay, so now let's go deeper. Is it available to all ages? And then what does treatment actually look like? Well, so the answer to both of those questions is sort of it depends. It depends on kind of the individual practitioner and the, and the practice you're engaged with. I think there are some similarities across age groups, and I'll talk about those, and then we'll sort of talk about some of the differences. So I think when we talk about what does treatment look like, well, it's a big commitment. And that's one of the things I talk to to families a lot about at the beginning, because the process of desensitization takes a long time, and it's accomplished through what I call sort of a dosing ladder, so to speak. So the idea with OIT is you're exposing the body to small amounts of allergen. I call it sometimes microdosing, meaning the idea is to give somebody a dose that they're not likely to react to. So we start with very tiny little doses at the beginning. And then if the patient tolerates that dose, they're given period of time on that very low dose, typically a couple of weeks. And then it's time to test the next dose. And the next dose is going to be a little bit higher than the last dose. And if they tolerate that, they stay on that for a couple of weeks, and then we test another dose. And so that's why this idea of a ladder that you take steps up. Now, every time we change a dose, we do that in the clinic. So on the first day when when you're just starting, we do that in the clinic. And every time we adjust the dose, which is oftentimes upward, but sometimes downward, we do all those dose changes in the clinic. And in between those clinic visits the families give a dose every day at home. So it's a mixture of in-clinic dosing and home dosing. A typical program, again, they they vary in different offices, but typically this phase of going through the dosing changes every couple of weeks or so may last, you know, six or eight or nine months or more where you're coming to to the clinic every couple of weeks and staying, you know, two, two and a half hours maybe for a dosing visit and then you're you know, taking the doses in between uh, at home until you reach the goal dose, which is called sort of the maintenance dose. And then we don't change it anymore. Once you're on your maintenance dose, you sort of stay on that. And you basically stay on it indefinitely. Because as I said, OIT is not a cure. So if you stop the treatment, 
eventually the effect is going to wear off. And so it really is a is a commitment involving, you know, a lot of these not only clinic visits, time missed from work and school, but also the the commitment of daily doses at home and, you know, this going on on sort of an ongoing basis. So there are a couple other things that are kind of consistent across age groups that are probably worth going through. And then we can, if you know, if you have further questions, we can go into kind of down in the weeds about how this really works. But other things that everybody should be aware of, there's some safety concerns associated with it. So you're, after all, swallowing little bits of the thing you're allergic to. So most patients that try OIT are going to have some allergic side effects. Most of those are going to be mild and manageable, things like itchy mouth, a little bit of abdominal pain, maybe an eczema flare, things that can often get better even sometimes with no treatment. But then there are more some, you know, more severe side effects like anaphylaxis uh, to the treatment itself or eosinophilic esophagitis, which has been seen in patients on uh, OIT. And these are currently sort of hard to predict, you know, when that's going to happen and who it's going to happen to. And I think there's now an emerging idea that you're more likely to have some kind of allergic symptoms, allergic reactions if you're pursuing OIT than, than you are if you're maintaining avoidance. And it's up for each family to decide, you know, is that worth it for them? Some say, well, at least the allergic side effects are a little bit more predictable. But there are going to be some safety concerns with OIT that you have to be careful about. And in part, one of the ways to mitigate some of those safety concerns are around dosing rules. Because some of the bigger reactions to OIT happen when people take doses in ways that are less safe. So, for instance, we go through this every time with every visit, you know, when you're dosing at home, you always got to take a dose on a full stomach. That's number one. You never take the dose when you're sick, even a little bit sick. And that's number two. Number three, you have to have a rest period for about two hours after dosing each time. So those are kind of the three main ones. There's other ones like the use of ibuprofen or other uh, non-steroidal medications. Sleep deprivation turns out to be important menstrual cycles, and others we probably don't know about. And these things affect the body's ability to handle a dose. These kinds of expectations, commitments, precautions are part of the OIT experience for everybody undergoing it, no matter you know what age they are. The original question had to do with age. Depending on the clinic you're going to, you may be offered OIT with a child as young as one in some clinics. And those would be typically with you know, store-bought food products. There is a commercially available FDA-approved form of treatment with peanut OIT called Palforzia that is only available to kids between the ages of 4 and 17. And if you try to get it uh, approved and use it in, in other age kids, it won't be approved. So it really depends on the food and the practice. And then we, you know, we treat kids up through their teenage years and, and there has been some experience in adults, but I would say relatively limited. And so you mentioned that age limit on the palforzia. Will that be changing in the future? Well, we'll see. I, I mean, I hope so. The first thing that may happen is hopefully an approval down to age one. And that will be dependent on data that we don't yet have. But there's, a, there's been an ongoing phase three study of the same product in kids under four. So it's, it's approved four to 17. It's being tested in kids one to four currently. We don't have those data yet. That study is fully enrolled and hopefully will conclude later this year. I'm not really sure exactly when or when the data will be available, 
But I mean, listeners should know that sometime in the next, I don't know, 6, 12, 18 months, we will learn whether or not this kind of treatment for peanut allergy is effective in kids under four. And if so, uh, and the data support it, it's likely that there will be, you know, an application to the FDA to expand the availability of that treatment down to age one, which I would be really excited about because, again, I did uh, my first NIH uh, project was in kids nine to 36 months with peanut allergy. There have been a number of other studies and real world experience in other countries of using oral immunotherapy in young kids. And the outcomes seem to be better than when we use it in older kids. And the kid, the younger kids often tolerate it really well because they don't have quite the same degree of aversion or, or maybe even anxiety about taking doses. But we don't know yet. So we'll, we'll have to see about that. That's kind of the, the young end of the spectrum. I think whether or not we'll see studies in adults is an open question. That's been an interesting thing. We know there are literally millions of adults with food allergy, but we don't have a lot of data from clinical trials that are open to adults. And we're at our center, we're doing a number of trials that could enroll patients into their 50s. But what we see is that not a lot of adults with food allergy actually turn up um, and show interest in participating in clinical trials, um, which is an interesting thing. And, and I don't know exactly why that is. That is very interesting. I mean, maybe it's because they're in the workforce and they're just so busy and raising children. And sometimes as parents, we put our health on the back burner and we put our children up front. So you're right. That is very interesting. But based on that, you mentioned, you know, you have a center. So is OIT available nationwide? Does someone need to find a clinical trial or a center or can any allergist do this? Well, that's a great question. I would say that it's an evolving situation. A few years ago, OIT was really only available in one of a few places. If you lived in a big city or you lived near one of these clinics, you had access to it. But for many of the, you know, much of the population, there would not be easy access to a provider. I think one of the benefits of having an FDA approved treatment that is commercially available and reimbursable with insurance is that it can be manufactured at scale and delivered at scale and therefore theoretically you know, any allergist that is used to giving allergy shots and has the infrastructure to do that and knows how to treat a reaction that might happen in the office could potentially use it. I don't think we're quite seeing the uptake at scale that we might have expected. I mean, it's hard to know exactly why that is. I mean, I, I would say that this big milestone, you know, in terms of the first commercially available treatment, the first FDA approval, the thing we've been working for, for, you know, for all those years, finally happened almost exactly at the same time that the pandemic came crashing down on everybody, which totally disrupted the way we care for patients. And so, and I, many practices are still st sort of struggling through that right now. And so it's hard to know how much that played into it. And, you know, I think there are some providers who just are, you know, not ready to make that change. On the other hand, you also have these clinics where they do a ton of OIT, not only to peanut, but to other foods, to many foods, to multiple foods together. And some of those are academic practices like large medical centers, and some of them are, are community-based private practices. You know, depending on where you live, you may have choices of multiple clinics, and in some places you still may not have a lot of options and might have to travel. So you mentioned a few minutes ago health insurance. So when a family starts to explore OIT as an option for their family, 
what type of things do they need to look at? Like you're saying uh, health insurance coverage, number of doctor's appointments, time off work, and then maintenance that goes on for lifetime. Like what does that lifetime maintenance look like too? What type of things should a family be looking at when they start their exploration? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly cost is an important aspect of treatment. And for the FDA-approved commercial product, it's important to know what your benefits plan will pick up and what you'll be responsible for. And that's going to be different for different people, of course. I think that's certainly an important consideration. And most um, programs that offer that type of treatment will run an approval through your insurance company so that before you get started, you'll know what that cost piece looks like to you. Now, on the other hand, there are practices, again, that use store-bought foods in protocols of their own design to do OIT. Some of the times they bill insurance, some of the times they just charge a flat fee schedule, and you need to know what that is and what that looks like for you. In that situation, you know, the cost of the material itself is usually pretty trivial, but there are going to be you know, doctors and and nurses and other providers billing for services in that situation. So you kind of want to know what your cost is like, because again, it is going to be for a long period of time. But I think other things that families need to think about beyond cost include, again, just looking realistically at your commitments and your schedule, because, you know, you're going to, as we talked about, you're going to spend a considerable amount of time away from work and school. So if you've got a child that's in a rigorous academic program that can't afford to miss a lot of school or is dealing with learning loss from the pandemic or whatever, that many visits away from school is an issue. You've got a two-hour rest period after every dose every day. So somebody that's really busy with extracurricular activities, particularly athletics, because you can't take one of these doses and then have any exercise. Uh, until, you know, a long period of time has gone by. So a busy teenager who's got multiple sports and stuff like that is an issue. Families also need to think about risk tolerance, right? What is their personal risk tolerance? We all know that people have different risk tolerances. But like I said before, going through OIT is going to mean, in general, you're going to be more likely to have to deal with a reaction because you're exposing your child to their allergen every single day. It's more likely that they're going to have a reaction than if they were maintaining avoidance because you're not exposed every day when you're in avoidance. Even you have accidents, but they're relatively infrequent. And so each family will have to decide like, well, a a more frequent, mild, predictable reaction, is that worth the goal of desensitization to us compared to, you know, avoidance? And, And I think that, you know, the burden of living in sort of the avoidance mindset is different for different folks. There are people who manage just fine on avoidance and have adjusted pretty well and have reasonably good quality of life. And then there are others who don't and really struggle. Um, And so that quality of life aspect, I think, is really important because OIT creates desensitization. And we measure that in the clinical trials in terms of, you know, oral food challenges and how much people can can safely consume. And those those shifts uh, in their ability to consume large amounts of allergen without having symptoms are significant in the clinical trials. But ultimately, the thing that matters and the reason that people seek treatment is to create that kind of peace of mind, knowing that they are protected and that, you know, living their lifestyle with that protection is going to help them in some way that matters to them, right? They're going to be able to navigate going to school, going to camp, taking that airplane flight, just whatever the case may be, feeling better about navigating life, knowing that you're protected. 
And that implies improvement from sort of a position where you're struggling. There are some people who manage okay on avoidance and the value proposition of being a little more protected when weighed against the costs that it takes to get there may decide, you know what, this isn't for us. Uh, And in fact, the majority of the patients we talk to about OIT right now have chosen not to pursue it, I think because of the lifestyle modifications that are required to do OIT successfully. It is a commitment, definitely. But I have many friends who are participating in OIT who rave about that peace of mind. So it's really kind of fun and interesting to watch people go through this process. Uh, For me, my kids are in college, so their allergist had said no OIT before college. He wanted them to wait because he knows they sometimes forget to take their asthma maintenance meds. That's a great example. I mean, this is a, a chronic daily therapy is, is kind of how I've described it. And we know that for chronic medical therapies, you know, whether it's an asthma inhaler, whether it's, you know, insulin for a diabetic, whether it's a blood pressure pill, you know, people struggle to take their medicine every day. And we know that. So it's important to, to I don't want to be pe- pessimistic about this. Like, it's just important to go through all these things so people have a realistic understanding of what the expectations are and what's required. If you can make the changes to make OIT work for your life, it can be a life-changing experience. And there's no question about that. I just think it's important for people to kind of realistically understand what it is and what it means, and then make that decision fully informed. When they take that step, they'll know what's expected of them. And there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of families across the country and across the world, frankly, that have now done this, and they see huge payoffs if it's the right thing for them to do. It's just that not everybody is going to agree that it's the right thing to do at this moment. That's why I appreciate you because you bring all the data to the table so then people can really understand it and go in with full knowledge and full passion and full energy. For my family, we're waiting for them to finish school. And then, you know, they're interested. My son would love to be able to tolerate sesame to a certain level and just remove that risk. But he knows he has to wait till he's done with college to even discuss it. But it's just exciting that we even are having these conversations. My son's 23, and I just can't even believe we're having these kind of treatments here. So this is just fantastic for me to hear. And our listeners, too. Well, and, and I, I think that also speaks to, I know this is a conversation about OIT, but, you know, part of what I do is in clinical research. So one of the ways we're addressing this is that, you know, OIT might not be the right treatment for every patient, or it might not, even for the right patient, it might not be the right time, like, for instance, when you're in college. But one of the ways we're addressing that is to develop other kinds of treatments. And so I think we're, in general, moving towards a landscape where people will have choices, right? Sort of right now, the choice is, do we continue avoidance or do we start OIT? And if we start OIT, like what kind of OIT do we pursue in different practices? But I think the it's likely that the landscape will continue to evolve where it's like, well, do we do avoidance? Do we do OIT? Or do we do other forms of immunotherapy? Or do we do biologics? Or, you know, there might be other options that may make it easier for people to kind of incorporate in their daily life. If OIT seems burdensome, well, we can, we may be able to, you know, address it this way, which might be better or easier to do for a college student, say, for instance. I love all of this. So now, do you have any suggestions of what kind of questions a family should be prepared to ask during their discussion with their doctor? 
Well, so I think one of the, the conversations that you should have from the beginning, in addition to some of the, the other things we talked about before in terms of cost and commitment and risk tolerance and how you know logistically the office works in terms of when we have questions, who can we contact after hours and things like that. But I think one of the key conversations that needs to happen early on is what are your goals of treatment? And this is an area that I think we don't quite know enough about from the patient's perspective. I think the doctors that have been studying this stuff have a a sense of what patients might want out of their treatment. I think we actually need to do a better job of understanding from a patient and family perspective what they want. And so being sure to raise that from the beginning and is it, there's no interest in ever eating this food. We just want to be prepared and protected from any accidents that might happen. So-called sort of bite-proof protection, that is the word that gets used a lot, versus, no, this is a food we'd like to get rid of. Maybe it's milk or egg or some other nutritionally important food in a child who's young and it's hard to avoid. And we want to get to a point where we can actually start to work some of that food back in the diet. And that is important to discuss up front because the approach may be different for different kinds of foods, or even if there's multiple foods in the same patient, you may have different ideas about different foods. And part of the reason this is important is because the target goal doses to achieve these outcomes may be different. If you're talking about just bite-proof protection, which is a very worthy goal, so I don't mean to downplay that, that may not take a huge maintenance dose to achieve that, right? Because the kinds of exposures that cause accidental reactions are typically pretty small. And so, you know, there are some of the different offices have different protocols. And depending on where you end up, they may ask you to work towards a target goal dose where the kid's eating something like 8, 10, 15, 20 peanuts per day as a goal dose, which is a lot. And, you know, that may be something that's hard to do for a child who has an aversion to peanut. We often think, well, more is better. Well, I I wouldn't necessarily say that's always true. It depends on what you're trying to do. We used to have this idea that if we treated with high doses, we could kind of pound the immune system into submission and maybe make the disease go away. That really hasn't panned out. Um, And so these, these high maintenance doses may not be helpful in achieving desensitization any more than a low maintenance dose would. But what it does create is a lot of aversion and actually safety risks. Because if you're taking that many peanuts a day, that's almost like doing a food challenge every day. And so it's important to have a conversation up front about what are we trying to achieve and how are we going to achieve it? And what are the doses that are required to get there? And like, what's the likelihood my child is going to be willing to consume this amount of food in this form in order to achieve that? Because at the end of the day, you know, the treatment requires oral exposure. And then I think, you know, other things... Is it one food? Is it multiple foods? Which foods are we going to target and which foods are we going to leave alone? What is your experience using these foods? Like how many patients have you treated with this kind of program? You may want to connect with other families who have been through it, who have some experience. If that's a possibility, maybe through a support group or a local group. And then how are we going to achieve this? Is it it a commercial product or is it a store-bought product? Right now, that discussion is limited to peanut. There are other products that are being developed that could be commercializable and and sort of standardized OIT products for other non-peanut foods. That discussion will continue to evolve in the future. OIT appears to really be a very customized treatment as well. It's very detailed and very individualized. It sounds like it's not a one-size-fits-all, but it sounds like you really get into the goals of the family, the child, everyone being involved. 
That's right. There's a term that has kind of emerged called shared decision-making that sort of helps to capture that nuanced, contextual, individual discussion with a family and it sort of evaluates risk benefits and alternatives of treatment, but also their goals, their risk tolerance, their comfort level with doing certain things. And it is a flexible approach. I mean, you can kind of design a program for what that family needs. That's certainly a virtue of this. But at the same time, I do think that also means there's a bit of a gap because I don't think we really understand quite yet how to do that and how to optimize things. And so when every clinic is doing things slightly differently without a pretty good sense yet of how like how we drive the best outcomes, that can be confusing to families. You could get multiple opinions and we see this a lot because families are trying to make the best decision for their child or themselves and they hear five different things from five different clinics and they wonder which is the right one. And the answer is, well, we don't really know yet. Well, Dr. Vickery, it's hard to believe, but we are at the end of our time together. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, I think we've covered a lot about OIT today, what it is and what it's not, what it does and doesn't do, you know, how it can be a life-changing experience for some and for others, they may decide, you know what, we're doing just fine on avoidance. So it's an exciting time in the field to be able to have the first sorts of treatment choices. There will be more choices to come. And I think that it's important to increasingly understand the patient voice as we move towards that landscape of choice. What I would say in wrapping up about OIT is that, you know, this has been a fairly well-studied treatment, especially for peanut milk and egg, less so for some of the other foods. But there have been remarkably similar results shown in these studies around the world, in the United States, multiple centers in the United States, UK, Germany, Australia. It's been fairly well studied. And so we have a pretty good sense of what it does and doesn't do. The results from these different studies in different places with different teams have been remarkably similar. So we have a pretty good sense of, of what to expect out of OIT. And so that means if you hear something about OIT that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So there's a lot of hype out there. And I think it's important for listeners to be sure to vet the information you get with an allergist who is experienced in food allergy. And that may mean that it, this requires a second opinion. You may need to talk to a few folks before you decide to do this. And doing so may require a little bit of investment of time and additional effort before you make your decision. But I think it'll be well worth it before committing to a long-term treatment that requires a lot out of your family. Wonderful words. Thank you again for your time. You are tremendously busy and we appreciate you coming onto this podcast. I've received fan mail to you with people being so grateful for you giving such honest information that it really helped them make some good decisions for their family. So again, we just can't thank you enough for your time. I look forward to having you again on the podcast. Looking forward to the future, hearing more about OIT and maybe other treatments. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I'm glad that listeners get some meaning out of this. And uh, it's, it's great to be able to reach people through podcasts and social media and all kinds of new ways of communicating these days. So thanks for having me on. And I look forward to our next time. Fantastic. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Before we wrap up today, I just want to say thank you once again to Amune for their kind support of the Facts Roundtable podcast. 
Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.